Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver, Paul Bunyan. The story of their adventures is nothing compared to the saga of Mickey, The Star Mouse by Frederick Brown. That's next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode. Special thanks to podcast listener Bill Farley, who requested the story you will hear today. Yes, we do take requests for stories or authors that you'd like to hear on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. In fact, next week, we've got another request for you. A rather unusual request. The Star Mouse first appeared in the spring 1942 edition of Planet Stories magazine. Turn with me now to page 28 for The Star Mouse, written by Frederick Brown. Mitkey the mouse wasn't Mitkey then. He was just another mouse who lived behind the floorboards and plaster of the house of the great Herr Professor Oberberger, formerly of Vienna and Heidelberg, then a refugee from the excessive admiration of more powerful of his fellow countrymen. The excessive admiration had concern, not Herr Oberberger himself, but a certain gas which had been a byproduct of an unsuccessful rocket fuel, which might have been a highly successful something else. If, of course, the professor had given them the correct formula, which he, well, anyway, the professor had made good his escape and now lived in a house in Connecticut, and so did Mickey. A small gray mouse and a small gray man. Nothing unusual about either of them. Particularly, there was nothing unusual about Mitki. He had a family, and he liked cheese. And if there were Rotarians among mice, he would have been a Rotarian. The Hare Professor, of course, had his mild eccentricities. A confirmed bachelor, he had no one to talk to except himself. But he considered himself an excellent conversationalist and held constant verbal communion with himself while he worked. That fact, it turned out later, was important, because Mitkey had excellent ears and heard those night-long soliloquies. He didn't understand them, of course. If he thought about them at all, he merely thought of the professor as a large and noisy supermouse who squeaked overmuch. Un now, he would say to himself, we will see whether this exhaust tube was properly machined. It should fit within one, one hundred thousandths of an inch. Ah, it is perfect. 
Well, no. Night after night, day after day, month after month. The gleaming thing grew, and the gleam in Herr Oberberger's eyes grew apace. It was about three and a half feet long, with weirdly shaped veins, and it rested on a temporary framework on a table in the center of the room that served the air professor for all purposes. The house in which he and Mitke lived was a four-room structure, but the professor hadn't yet found it out, seemingly. Originally, he had planned to use the big room as a laboratory only, but he found it more convenient to sleep on a cot in one corner of it, when he slept at all, and to do the little cooking he did over the same gas burner over which he melted down golden grains of TNT into a dangerous soup, which he salted and peppered with strange condiments, but did not eat. And now I shall bore it into tubes, and see whether one tube adjacent to another explodes their second tube when their first tube is... That was the night Mickey almost decided to move himself and his family to a more stable abode, one that did not rock and sway and try to turn handsprings on its foundations. But Mitke didn't move after all because there were compensations. New mouse holes all over, and, joy of joy, a big crack in the back of the refrigerator where the professor kept, among other things, food. Of course, the tubes had not been larger than capillary size, or the house would not have remained around the mouse holes. And, of course, Mitke could not guess what was coming, nor understand the Herr Professor's brand of English nor any other brand of English, for that matter, or he would not have let even a crack in the refrigerator tempt him. The professor was jubilant that morning. Their fuel, it works. Their second tube, it did not explode. Und der first in sections as I had expected. Und it is more powerful. There will be plenty of room for their compartment. Ah, yes, the compartment. That was where Mitke came in, although even the professor didn't know it yet. In fact, the professor didn't even know that Mitke existed. And now, he was saying to his favorite listener, it is but a matter of combining their fuel tubes so they work in opposite bears. And then, that was the moment when the hair professor's eyes first fell on Mitke. Rather, they fell upon a pair of gray whiskers and a black, shiny little nose protruding from a hole in the baseboards. Well, he said, what have we here? Mickey Mouse himself. Mickey, how would you like to go for a ride next week? We shall see. That is how it came about that the next time the professor sent into town for supplies, his order included a mouse trap, not one of the vicious kind that kills, but one of the wire cage kind, and it had not been set with cheese for more than ten minutes before Mickey's sharp little nose had smelled out that cheese, and he had followed his nose into captivity. Not, however, an unpleasant captivity. Mickey was an honored guest. The cage reposed now on the table at which the professor did most of his work, and cheese in indigestion-giving abundance was pushed through the bars, and the professor didn't talk to himself anymore. You see, Mickey, I was going to send to their laboratory in Hartford for a white mouse. But why should I meet you here? I am sure you are more sound and healthy and able to withstand a long journey than those laboratory mices, no? Ah, you wiggle your whiskers, and that means yes, no? And being used to living in dark holes, you should suffer less than they from claustrophobia, no? And Mickey grew fat and happy, and forgot all about trying to get out of the cage. I fear that he even forgot about the family he had abandoned, but he knew, if he knew anything, that he need not worry about them in the slightest. 
at least not until and unless the professor discovered and repaired the hole in the refrigerator. And the professor's mind was most emphatically not on refrigerators. Un so, Mickey, we shall place this vein so it is only of assistance in their landing in an atmosphere. It unzees will bring you down safely and slowly enough that their shock absorbers in their movable compartment will keep you from bumping your head too hard, I think. Of course, Mitke missed the ominous note to that, I think, qualification, because he missed all the rest of it. He did not, as has been explained, speak English. Not then. But Herr Oberberger talked to him just the same. He showed him pictures. Did you ever see der mouse you was named after, Mickey? What? No. Look, this is der original Mickey Mouse by Walt Disney. Boots, I think you are cuter, Mickey. Probably the professor was a bit crazy to talk that way to a little gray mouse. In fact, he must have been crazy to make a rocket that worked. For the odd thing was that the hair professor was not really an inventor. There was, as he carefully explained to Mickey, not one single thing about that rocket that was new. The hair professor was a technician. He could take other people's ideas and make them work. His only real invention, the rocket fuel that wasn't one, had been turned over to the United States government, and it proved to be something already known and discarded because it was too expensive for practical use. As he explained very carefully to Mitke, it is purely a matter of absolute accuracy and mathematical correctness, Mitke. It is all here. We merely combine and we achieve what, Mitke? Escape velocity, Mitke. Just barely. It adds up to escape velocity. Maybe. There are yet unknown factors, Mickey, in their upper atmosphere, their troposphere, their stratosphere. We think we know exactly how much air there is to calculate resistance against, but are we absolutely sure? No, Mickey, we are not. We have not been there. And their marching is so narrow that so much as an air current might affect it. But Mitke cared not a whit. In the shadow of the tapering aluminum alloy cylinder, he waxed fat and happy. Der tag, Mitke, der tag. Und I shall not lie to you, Mitke. I shall not give you false assurances. You go on a dangerous journey, mein little friend. A fifty-fifty chance we give you, Mitke. Not their moon or bus, but their moon un bust, or else maybe safely back to Earth. You see, my poor little Mitki, their moon is not made of green cheese, and if it were, you would not live to eat it because there is not enough atmosphere to bring you down safely, and with your whiskers still on. Un why then, you may well ask, do I send you? because their rocket may not attain escape velocity. And in that case, it is still an experiment, but a different one. Their rocket, if it goes not to their moon, falls back on their Earth, no? And in that case, certain instruments shall give us further information than we have yet about things up there in space. And you shall give us information by whether or not you are yet alive. Whether their shock absorbers and veins are sufficient in an Earth-equivalent atmosphere. You see? Then later, when we send rockets to Venus, maybe where an atmosphere exists, we shall have data to calculate the needed size of veins and shock absorbers, no? And in either case, and whether or not you return, Mitki, you shall be famous. You shall be their first living creature to go out beyond their stratosphere of their Earth, out into space. Mitki, you shall be their star mouse. I envy you, Mitki. 
And I only wish I were your size so I could go too. Goodbye, little Mickey Mouse. Darkness. Silence. Noise. Their rocket. If it goes not to their moon, falls back on their earth, no? That was what the air professor thought. But the best laid plans of mice and men gang after glay. Even star mice. All because of PRXL. The hair professor found himself very lonely. After having had Mitki to talk to, soliloquies were somehow empty and adequate. There may be some who say that the company of a small gray mouse is a poor substitute for a wife. But others may disagree, and anyway, the professor had never had a wife, and he had a mouse to talk to. So he missed one, and if he missed the other, he didn't know it. During the long night after the launching of the rocket, he had been very busy with his telescope, a sweet little eight-inch reflector, checking its course as it gathered momentum. The exhaust explosions made a tiny fluctuating point of light that was possible to follow, if one knew where to look. But the following day, there seemed to be nothing to do, and he was too excited to sleep, although he tried. So he compromised by doing a spot of housekeeping, cleaning the pots and pans. It was while he was so engaged that he heard a series of frantic little squeaks and discovered that another small gray mouse, with shorter whiskers and a shorter tail than Mickey, had walked into the wire cage mousetrap. Well, well, said the professor. What have we here? Minnie? Is it Minnie come to look for her Mickey? The professor was not a biologist, but he happened to be right. It was Minnie. Rather, it was Mitkey's mate, so the name was appropriate. What strange vagary of mind had induced her to walk into an unbaited trap? The professor neither knew nor cared, but he was delighted. He promptly remedied the lack of bait by pushing a sizable piece of cheese through the bars. Thus it was that Minnie came to fill the place of her far-traveling spouse as repository for the professor's confidences. Whether she worried about her family or not, there is no way of knowing, but she need not have done so. They were now large enough to fend for themselves, particularly in a house that offered abundant cover and easy access to the refrigerator. Ah, well now it is dark enough, Minnie, that we can look for that husband of yours, his wiry trail across the sky. True, Minnie, it is a very small, fiery trail, and their astronomers will not notice it, because they do not know where to look. But we do. He is going to be a very famous mouse, Minnie, this Mickey of ours, when we tell their world about him and about mine rocket. You see, Minnie, we have not told them yet. We shall wait and give their complete story all at once. By dawn of tomorrow, we'll... Ah, there he is, Minnie. Vaint, but there. I'd hold you up to their scope and let you look, but it would not be focused right for your eyes, and I do not know how to... Almost one hundred thousand miles, Minnie. And still accelerating, but not for much longer. Our Mickey is on schedule. In fact, he is going faster than we had figured, no? It is sure now that he will escape the gravitation of the Earth and fall upon their moon. Of course, it was purely coincidental that Minnie squeaked. Ah, yes, Minnie, little Minnie. I know, I know. We shall never see our Mitki again, and I almost wish our experiment had failed. But there are compensations, Minnie. He shall be their most famous of all mices, their star mouse, worst living creature ever to go beyond their gravitational bull of Earth. The night was long. Occasionally high clouds obscured vision. Minnie? 
I shall make you more comfortable than in that so small wire cage. You would like to seem to be free, would you not, without bars like their animals at modern zoos with moats instead? And so, to fill in an hour when a cloud obscured the sky, the hair professor made Minnie her new home. It was the end of a wooden crate, about half an inch thick and a foot square, laid flat on the table and with no visible barrier around it. But he covered the top with metal foil at the edges, and he placed the board on another larger board, which also had a strip of metal foil surrounding the island of Minnie's home and wires from the two areas of metal foil to opposite terminals of a small transformer, which he placed nearby. And now, Minnie, I shall place you on your island, which shall be liberally supplied with cheese and water, and you shall find it is an excellent place to live. But you will get a mild shock or two when you try to step off the edge of their island. It will not hurt much, but you will not like it. And after a few tries, you will learn not to try again, no? Und and night again. Minnie happy on her island, her lesson well learned. She would no longer so much as step on the inner strip of metal foil. It was a mouse paradise of an island, though. There was a cliff of cheese bigger than Minnie herself. It kept her busy, mouse and cheese. Soon one would be a transmutation of the other. But Professor Oberberger wasn't thinking about that. The professor was worried. When he had calculated and recalculated and aimed his eight-inch reflector through the hole in the roof and turned out the lights, yes, there are advantages to being a bachelor after all. If one wants a hole in the roof, one simply knocks a hole in the roof. And there's nobody to tell one that one is crazy. If winter comes or if it rains, one can always call a carpenter or use a tarpaulin. But the faint trail of light wasn't there. The professor frowned and recalculated and re-recalculated and shifted his telescope three-tenths of a minute and still the rocket wasn't there. Minnie, something is wrong. Either the tubes have stopped firing or... Or the rocket was no longer traversing a straight line relative to its point of departure. By straight, of course, is meant parabolically curved relative to everything other than velocity. So the hair professor did the only thing remaining for him to do and began to search with the telescope in widening circles. It was two hours before he found it, five degrees off course already, and veering more and more into a, well, there was only one thing you could call it, a tailspin. The darn thing was going in circles, circles which appeared to constitute an orbit about something that couldn't possibly be there, then narrowing into a concentric spiral, then out, gone, darkness. No rocket flares. The professor's face was pale as he turned to Minnie. It is impossible, Minnie. Mine own eyes, but it could not be. Even if Woonside stopped firing, it could not have gone into such sudden circles. His pencil verified a suspicion. And Minnie, it decelerated faster than possible. Even with no tubes firing, its momentum would have been more. The rest of the night, telescope and calculus yielded no clue. That is, no believable clue. Some force not inherent in the rocket itself and not accountable by gravitation, even of a hypothetical body, had acted. Mine poor Mickey. The Gray Inscrutable Dawn my Minnie, it will have to be a secret. We dare not publish what we saw, for it would not be believed. I am not sure I believe it myself, Minnie. Perhaps because I was overtired from not sleeping, I choose to imagine that I saw later. But Minnie, we shall hope. One hundred fifty thousand miles out it was. 
it will fall back upon the earth. But I cannot tell where. I thought that if I did, I would be able to calculate its course. And, but after those concentric circles, Minnie, not even Einstein could calculate where it will land. Not even me. All we can do is hope that we shall hear where it falls. Cloudy day. Black night jealous of its mysteries. Minnie, our poor Mitki, there is nothing that could have caused, but something had. PRXL. PRXL is an asteroid. It isn't called that by earthly astronomers because, for excellent reasons, they have not discovered it. So we will call it by the nearest possible transliteration of the name its inhabitants use. Yes, it's inhabited. Come to think of it, Professor Oberberger's attempt to send a rocket to the moon had some strange results, or rather, PRXL did. You wouldn't think that an asteroid could reform a drunk, would you? But one Charles Winslow, a besotted citizen of Bridgeport, Connecticut, never took a drink when, right on Grove Street, a mouse asked him the road to Hartford. The mouse was wearing bright red pants and vivid yellow gloves. But that was fifteen months after the professor lost his rocket. We'd better start over again. PRXL is an asteroid, one of those despised celestial bodies which terrestrial astronomers call vermin of the sky, because the darn things leave trails across the plates that clutter up the more important observations of Novi and Nebulae. Fifty thousand fleas on the dark dog of night. Tiny things, most of them. Astronomers have been discovering recently that some of them come close to Earth amazingly close. There was excitement in 1932 when Amor came within 10 million miles, a mere mashy shot. Then Apollo cut that almost in half. And in 1936, Adonis came within less than one and a half million miles. In 1937, Hermes, less than half a million. But the astronomers got really excited when they calculated its orbit and found that the little mile-long asteroid can come within a mere 220,000 miles, closer than Earth's own moon. Someday, they may be still more excited, if and when they spot the three-eighths-mile asteroid PRXL, that obstacle of space making a transit across the moon and discover that it frequently comes within a mere hundred thousand miles of our rapidly whirling world. Only in event of a transit will they ever discover it, though. For PRXL does not reflect light. It hasn't, anyway, for several million years, since its inhabitants coated it with a black, light-absorbing pigment derived from its interior. Monumental task painting a world for creatures half an inch tall, but worth it at the time. When they'd shifted its orbit, they were safe from their enemies. There were giants in those days, eight-inch tall marauding pirates from Deimos. Got to Earth a couple of times, too, before they faded out of the picture. Pleasant little giants who killed because they enjoyed it. Records in now-buried cities on Deimos might explain what happened to the dinosaurs and why the promising Cro-Magnons disappeared at the height of their promise, only a cosmic few minutes after the dinosaurs went west. But PRXL survived. Tiny world, no longer reflecting the sun's rays, lost to the cosmic killers when its orbit was shifted. PRXL, still civilized with a civilization millions of years old. Its coat of blackness preserved and renewed regularly, more through tradition than fear of enemies in these later degenerate days. Mighty but stagnant civilization, standing still on a world that whizzes like a bullet. And Mickey Mouse. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Florloff, head scientist of a race of scientists, tapped his assistant, Bemjay, on what would have been Benjay's shoulder if he had had one. Look he said. What approaches PRXL? Obviously artificial propulsion. Bemjay looked into the wall plate and then directed a thought wave at the mechanism that jumped the magnification of a thousandfold through an alteration of the electronic field. The image leaped, blurred, then steadied. Fabricated, said Bemjay. Extremely crude, I must say. Primitive, explosive-powered rocket. Wait, I'll check where it came from. He took the readings from the dials about the viewplate and hurled them as thoughts against the psycho coil of the computer, then waited while that most complicated of machines digested all the factors and prepared the answer. Then eagerly he slid his mind into rapport with its projector. Klarloff likewise listened in to the silent broadcast. Exact point on earth and exact time of departure. Untranslatable expression of curve of trajectory and point on that curve where deflected by gravitational pull of PRXL. The destination, or rather the original intended destination of the rocket, was obvious. Earth's moon. Time and place of arrival on PRXL if present course of rocket was unchanged. Earth said Klarloff meditatively. They were a long way from rocket travel the last time we checked them. Some sort of a crusade or battle of beliefs going on, wasn't there? Bemjay nodded. Catapults, bows and arrows. They've taken a long stride since, even if this is only an early experimental thing of a rocket. Shall we destroy it before it gets here? Klarloff shook his head thoughtfully. Let's look it over. May save us a trip to Earth. We can judge their present state of development pretty well from the rocket itself. But then we'll have to, of course, call the station. Tell them to train their attracto repulsors on it and to swing it into a temporary orbit until they prepare a landing cradle and not forget to damp out the explosive before they bring it down. Temporary force field round point of landing... In case, naturally. So, despite the almost complete absence of atmosphere in which the vanes could have functioned, the rocket came down safely and so softly that Mitke, in the dark compartment, knew only that the awful noise had stopped. Mitke felt better. He ate some more of the cheese with which the compartment was liberally provided. Then he resumed trying to gnaw a hole in the inch-thick wood with which the compartment was lined. That wooden lining was a kind thought of the air professor for Mickey's mental well-being. He knew that trying to gnaw his way out would give Mickey something to do en route which would keep him from getting the screaming memes. The idea had worked. Being busy, Mickey hadn't suffered mentally from his dark confinement. And now the things were quiet. He chewed away more industriously and more happily than ever, sublimely unaware that when he got through the wood, he'd find only metal which he couldn't chew. But better people than Mitke have found things they couldn't chew. Meanwhile, Klarloth and Bemjay and several thousand other PRXLians stood gazing up at the huge rocket, which, even lying on its side, towered high over their heads. Some of the younger ones, forgetting the invisible field of force, walked too close and came back, ruefully rubbing bumped heads.
Klarloff himself was at the psychograph. There is life inside the rocket, he told Bemjay, but the impressions are confused. One creature, but I cannot follow its thought processes. At the moment, it seems to be doing something with its teeth. It could not be an earthling, one of the dominant race. One of them is much larger than this huge rocket. Gigantic creatures, perhaps unable to construct a rocket large enough to hold one of themselves, they sent an experimental creature, such as our Woo-Raths. I believe you've guessed right, Bemjay. Well, when we have explored its mind thoroughly, we may still learn enough to save us a checkup trip to Earth. I am going to open the door. But air, creatures of Earth, would need a heavy, almost a dense atmosphere. It could not live. We retain the force field, of course. It will keep the air in. Obviously, there is a source of supply of air within the rocket, or the creature would not have survived the trip. Klarloff operated controls, and the force field itself put forth invisible pseudopods and turned the outer screw door, then reached within and unlatched the inner door to the compartment itself. All PRXL watched breathlessly as a monstrous gray head pushed out of the huge aperture yawning overhead. Thick whiskers, each as long as the body of a PRXLian. Mickey jumped down and took a forward step that bumped his black nose hard into something that wasn't there. He squeaked and jumped backwards against the rocket. There was disgust in Bemjay's face as he looked up at the monster, obviously much less intelligent than a woo-rath. Might just as well turn on the ray. Not at all, interrupted Clarloth. You forget certain very obvious facts. The creature is unintelligent, of course, but the subconscious of every animal holds in itself every memory, every impression, every sense image to which it has ever been subjected. If this creature has ever heard the speech of the earthlings or seen any of their works besides this rocket, every word and every picture is indelibly graven. You see now what I mean? Naturally. How stupid of me, Clarla. Well, one thing is obvious from the rocket itself. We have nothing to fear from the science of Earth for at least a few millennia. So there is no hurry, which is fortunate. For to send back the creature's memory to the time of its birth and to follow each sensory impression in the psychograph will require, well, a time at least equivalent to the age of the creature, whatever that is plus the time necessary for us to interpret and assimilate each. But that will not be necessary, Bemjay. No. Oh, you mean the X-19 waves? Exactly. Focus upon this creature's brain center, they can, without disturbing his memories, be so delicately adjusted as to increase his intelligence. Now, probably about point zero zero one in the scale, to the point where he is a reasoning creature. Almost automatically, during the process, he will assimilate his own memories and understand them just as he would if he had been intelligent at the time he received those impressions. See, Bemjay, he will automatically sort out irrelevant data and will be able to answer our questions. But would you make him as intelligent as... as we? No, the X-19 waves would not work so far. I would say to about point two on the scale, that judging from the rocket coupled with what we remember of Earthlings from our last trip there, is about their present place on the intelligence scale. Hmm, yes, at that level he would comprehend his experiences on Earth just sufficiently that he would not be dangerous to us too, equal to an intelligent Earthling, just about right for our purpose. Then shall we teach him our language? Wait, said Klarloff. He studied the psychograph closely for a while. No, I do not think so. He will have a language of his own. I see in his subconscious memories of many long conversations. Strangely, they all seem to be monologues by one person. But he will have a language, a simple one. 
It would take him a long time, even under treatment, to grasp the concepts of our own method of communication. But we can learn his while he is under the X-19 machine in a few minutes. Does he understand now any of that language? Clarloth studied the psychograph again. No, I do not believe he... Wait, there is one word that seems to mean something to him. The word Mitki. It seems to be his name, and I believe that from hearing it many times, he vaguely associates it with himself. And quarters for him? With airlocks and such? Of course, order them built. To say it was a strange experience for Mitki is understatement. Knowledge is a strange thing, even when it is acquired gradually. To have it thrust upon one, and there were little things that had to be straightened out, like the matter of vocal cords. His weren't adapted to the language he now found he knew. Bemjay fixed that. You would hardly call it an operation because Mickey, even with his new awareness, didn't know what was going on, and he was wide awake at the time. And they didn't explain to Mickey about the J dimension, with which one can get at the inwardness of things without penetrating the outside. They figured things like that weren't in Mickey's line, and anyway, they were more interested in learning from him than teaching him. Bemjay and Clarloth and a dozen others deemed worthy of the privilege. If one of them wasn't talking to him, the other was. Their questioning helped his own growing understanding. He would not usually know that he knew the answer to a question until it was asked. Then he'd piece together without knowing just how he did it, any more than you or I know how we know things, and give them the answer. Bemjay, is this language which you speak a universal voon? And Mitki, even though he'd never thought about it before, had the answer ready. No, it is not. It is English. But I remembered their Herr Professor speaking of other tongues. I believe he spoke another himself originally, but in American he always spoke English to become more familiar with it. It is a beautiful speech, is it not? Hmm, said Bemjay. Clarloth. And your race, the Mises, are they treated well? Not by most people, Mitki told him, and explained. I would like to do something for them, he added. Look, could I not take back mint me this process which you used upon me, apply it to other mices, and create a race of super mices? Why not? asked Bemjay. He saw Clarloth looking at him strangely, and threw his mind into rapport with the chief scientist, with Mitki left out of the silent communion. Yes, of course. Bemjay told Clarloth. It will lead to trouble on Earth, grave trouble. Two equal classes of beings so dissimilar as mice and men cannot live together in amity. But why should that concern us other than favorably? The resultant mess will slow down progress on Earth. Give us a few more millennia of peace before Earthlings discover we are here and trouble starts. You know these earthlings. But you would give them the X-19 waves? They might... No, of course not. But we can explain to Mickey here how to make a very crude and limited machine for them. A primitive one, which would suffice for nothing more than the specific task of converting mouse mentality from point zero 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 one to point two, Mickey's own level and that of the bifurcated earthlings. It is possible, communicated Clarloth. It is certain that for eons to come they will be incapable of understanding its basic principle. But could they not use even a crude machine to raise their own level of intelligence? You forget, Bemjay, the basic limitation of the X-19 rays, that no one can possibly design a projector capable of raising any mentality to a point on the scale higher than his own. Not even we. All this, of course, over Mickey's head in silent PRXLian. More interviews and more. Clarloth again. Mickey, 
We warn you of one thing. Avoid carelessness with electricity. During new molecular rearrangement of your brain center, it is unstable und bemje. Mitki, are you sure your hair professor is the most advanced of all who experiment with the rockets? In general, yes, Bemje. There are others who on one specific point, such as explosives, mathematics, astrophysics, may know more, but not much more. And for combining these knowledges, he is ahead. It is well, said Bemje. Small gray mouse towering like a dinosaur over tinier half-inch PRXLians. Meek herbivorous creature though he was, Mickey could have killed any of them with a single bite. But of course, it never occurred to him to do so, nor to them to fear that he might. They turned him inside out mentally. They did a pretty good job of study on him physically, too. But that was through the J dimension, and Mitke didn't even know about it. They found out what made him tick, and they found out everything he knew, and some things he didn't even know he knew. And they grew quite fond of him. Mitke, said Clarloth one day, all their civilized races on Earth wear clothing, do they not? Well, if you are to raise their level of mice to men, would it not be fitting that you wear clothes too? An excellent idea, Herr Klarloth, and I know just what kind I would like. Their air professor once showed me a picture of a mouse painted by their artist Disney, and their mouse wore clothing. Their mouse was not a real-life one, but an imaginary mouse in a bearable, and their professor named me after their Disney mouse. What kind of clothing was it, Mickey? That was on the eve of Mitke's departure. Originally, BMJ had suggested awaiting the moment when PRXL's eccentric orbit would again take it within 150,000 miles of Earth. But as Klarloth pointed out, that would be 55 Earth years ahead, and Mitke wouldn't last that long. Not unless they and BMJ agreed that they had better not risk sending a secret like that back to Earth. Bright red bands met two big yellow buttons in front and two in back, and yellow shoes for their back feet and a pair of yellow gloves for their front, a hole in their seat of their bands to accommodate their tail. Okay, Mitki, such shall be ready for you in five minutes. So they compromised by refueling Mitki's rocket with something that would cancel out the million and a quarter odd miles he would have to travel. That secret they didn't have to worry about, because the fuel would be gone by the time the rocket landed. Day of Departure We have done our best, Mickey, to set un time their rocket so it will land on or near the spot from which you left Earth. But you cannot expect accuracy in a voyage so long as this. But you will land near. The rest is up to you. We have equipped the rocket ship for every contingency. Thank you, Herr Klarloth, Herr Bemjay. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mitki. We hate to lose you. Goodbye, Mitki. Goodbye. Goodbye. For a million and a quarter miles, the aim was really excellent. The rocket landed in Long Island Sound, ten miles out from Bridgeport about 60 miles from the house of Professor Oberberger near Hartford. They had prepared for a water landing, of course. The rocket went down to the bottom, but before it was more than a few dozen feet under the surface, Mitke opened the door, especially re-equipped to open from the inside, and stepped out. Over his regular clothes, he wore a neat little diving suit that would have protected him at any reasonable depth and which, being lighter than water, brought him to the surface quickly where he was able to open his helmet. He had enough synthetic food to last him for a week, but it wasn't necessary as things turned out. The night boat from Boston carried him into Bridgeport on its anchor chain, and once inside of land he was able to divest himself of the diving suit, 
and let it sink to the bottom after he'd punctured the tiny compartments that made it float, as he'd promised Klarloth he would do. Almost instinctively, Mickey knew that he'd do well to avoid human beings until he'd reached Professor Oberberger and told his story. His worst danger proved to be the rats at the wharf where he swam ashore. They were ten times Mickey's size and had teeth that could have taken him apart in two bites. But mind has always triumphed over matter. Mickey pointed an imperious yellow glove and said, Scram! And the rats scrammed. They'd never seen anything like Mickey before, and they were impressed. So, for that matter, was the drunk of whom Mickey inquired the way to Hartford. We mentioned that episode before. That was the only time Mickey tried direct communication with strange human beings. He took, of course, every precaution. He addressed his remarks from a strategic position only inches away from a hole into which he could have popped. But it was the drunk who did the popping, without even waiting to answer Mickey's question. But he got there, finally. He made his way afoot to the north side of town and hid out behind a gas station until he heard a motorist who had pulled in for gasoline inquire the way to Hartford and Mickey was a stowaway when the car started up. The rest wasn't hard. The calculations of the PRX aliens showed that the starting point of the rocket was five Earth miles northwest of what showed on their telescopo maps as a city, and which, from the professor's conversation, Mickey knew would be Hartford. He got there. Hello, Professor. The air professor Oberberger looked up, startled. There was no one in sight. What? he asked of the air. Who is? It is I, professor, Mickey der Maus, whom you sent to der moon. But I was not there. Instead, I... What? It is impossible. Somebody plays their choke. But, but nobody knows about that rocket. When it failed, I didn't told nobody. Nobody but me knows. And me, Professor. The air professor sighed heavily. Overwork. I am going what they call badly in their bell. No, Professor. This is really me, Mickey. I can talk now, just like you. You say you can. I do not believe it. Why can I not see you then? Where are you? Why don't you? I am hiding, Professor, in their vault just behind their big hole. I wanted to be sure everything was okay before I showed myself. Then you would not get excited and throw something at me, maybe. What? Why, Mickey? If it is really you and I am not asleep or going. Why, Mickey, you know better than that to think I might do something like that? Okay, Professor. Mickey stepped out of the hole in the wall, and the professor looked at him and rubbed his eyes and looked again and rubbed his eyes and... I am crazy, he said finally. Red pants he wears yet un yellow. It cannot be. I am crazy. No, Professor, listen, I'll tell you all about. And Mickey told him. Gray dawn, and a small gray mouse still talking earnestly. But Mickey! Yes, Professor, I see your point. That you think an intelligent race of mices and an intelligent race of men could not get along side by sides. But it would not be side by sides, as I said. There are only a very few people in the smallest continent of Australia, and it would cost little to bring them back and turn over that continent to us mices. We would call it Australia instead Australia, and we would instead of Sydney call their capital Disney in honor of... But, Mickey, but, Professor, look what we offer for that continent. All mices would go there, 
We civilize a few and a few help us catch others and bring them in to put them under the ray machine. And the others help catch more and build more machines and it grows like a snowball rolling downhill. And we sign a non-aggression pact with humans and stay on Australia and raise our own food and but Mickey, and look what we offer you in exchange, Herr Professor. We will exterminate your worst enemy, the rats. We do not like them either. Un one battalion of one thousand mices, armed with gas masks and small gas bombs, could go right in every hole after the rats, and could exterminate every rat in a city in one day or two. In their whole world, we could exterminate every last rat in a year, and at the same time catch and civilize every mouse and ship him to Australia. And, but Mickey, what, Professor? It would work, but it would not work. You could exterminate the rats, yes, but how long would it be before conflicts of interest would lead to their mice trying to exterminate their people? Or their people trying to exterminate their... They would not dare, Professor. We could make weapons that would... You see, Mickey? But it would not happen. If men will honor our rights, we will honor... The air professor sighed. I... I will act as your intermediary, Mickey, and offer your proposition, and, well, it is true that getting rid of rats would be a great boon to the human race, but, thank you, Professor. By the way, Mickey, I have many, your wife, I guess it is, unless there was other mices around. She is in the other room. I put her there, choose before you arrived so she would be in the dark and could sleep. You want to see her? Wife, said Mickey. It had been so long that he had really forgotten the family he had perforce abandoned. The memory returned slowly. Well, he said, mm, yes, we will get her, and I shall construct Vic a small X-19 projector, and yes... It will help you in your negotiations with their governments if there are several of us already, so they can see I am not just a freak like they might otherwise suspect. It wasn't deliberate. It couldn't have been, because the professor didn't know about Clarlos warning the Mickey about carelessness with electricity. Their new molecular rearrangement of your brain center, it is unstable and... And the professor was still back in the lighted room when Mickey ran into the room where Minnie was in her barless cage. She was asleep, and the sight of her, memory of his earlier days came back like a flash. And suddenly Mickey knew how lonesome he had been. Minnie, he called, forgetting that she could not understand, and stepped up on the board where she lay. Squeak! The mild electrical current between the two strips of tinfoil got him. There was silence for a while. Then, Mickey, called the air professor. Come on back and we will discuss this. He stepped through the doorway and saw them. There in the gray light of dawn, two small gray mice cuddled happily together. He couldn't tell which was which, because Mickey's teeth had torn off the red and yellow garments which had suddenly been strange, confining, and obnoxious things. What on earth? asked Professor Oberberger. Then he remembered the current and guessed. Mickey, can you no longer talk? Is there silence? Then the professor smiled. Mickey, he said, my little star mouse, I think you're more happier now. He watched them a moment, fondly, then reached down and flipped the switch that broke the electrical barrier. Of course, they didn't know they were free. But when the professor picked them up and placed them carefully on the floor, one ran immediately for the hole in the wall. The other followed, but turned around and looked back, still a trace of puzzlement in the little black eyes.
a puzzlement that faded. Goodbye, Mickey. You will be happier this way. And there will always be cheese. Squeak, said the little gray mouse, and it popped into the hole. Goodbye, it might or might not have meant. That's The Star Mouse by Frederick Brown. Next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, once again, by request, a special episode filled with several super short science fiction stories. That's next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode.